by reading parts from an article, and this is an article out of a major publication, and it was talking about a specific Christian issue, uh, something that's facing churches, and I'm going to just obscure a few of the details so that you can all kind of think in your heads, what's the issue that they're writing about? Like, what is this, what is this article being written about, okay? So that's what you're trying to puzzle out in your heads right now as I read this. So this was an opinion piece. It was written in a major, major publication. And the author writes, uh, they're writing against something. Something they're like, hmm, this is bad. That's what they're writing. They're writing against something. So they open their article. They say there are several reasons for opposing it. Again, I'm obscuring some details, right? There's several reasons for opposing it. One, it is too new. It is just too new. We don't know enough about it. How can the church respond to something when it's so new? We just lack information. Two, it is too often, not always, but it is often too worldly and even blasphemous. Like, they're bringing out big words here. Like, this is, the, you know, the person who's, who's writing this article, they are pulling no punches, right? So you're thinking, okay, often worldly, even blasphemous. Uh, you know, I, I, who knows? It could be true, right? It could be true, depending on what they're writing about. So we'll keep an open mind. Three, it's just too much. You can't learn them all. You just, like, there's so many. How are we supposed, how can a regular person in church learn all of this? Ugh. Okay. The next one, it creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. That is not what we want in our churches, right? Next, they say, everyone up until now got along without this. I think they're kind of repeating their point about it being new, but I guess they're against new things. Everyone up, and, up until now, they got along without this. And then they continue on, well, when you really think about it, actually, if you really puzzle this out, if you pull the pieces apart, it is all just about money. That's what it's really about. And some... Some of these new things, they really are quite lewd. That's the word they used. They said it really, this is quite lewd. I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, but you, do you, do people have guesses in their head, maybe what this is written about. You're thinking about the church, what's going on, you know, what's happening. You don't have to say it out loud, but you can nod your head. Maybe there's something in your mind. You know, lots of them to learn. We got on before without them. What is this about? Well, I'll ask you, does it, change your, does it change how you think about it if I tell you that this article was written in the year 1723? <laughs> this was published in a newspaper. It was written by a local pastor, and he was decrying the blasphemous, absolutely terrible, horrendous hymns written by Isaac Watts. <laughs> he didn't like them. They were too new. There were too many of them. They're all a money grab, actually could be even more. They're blasphemous. Hymns. Hymns like, when I survey the wondrous cross, how dare we? Or joy to the world. Or, you know, that's maybe making people behave in a disorderly way. Joy to the world. Or, this is the day that the Lord hath made. How dare churches sing these things, right? As we look back, it seems pretty silly, right? But it does seem... That without fail, in each generation, churches have to reckon with what to do with the new and the old. How to parse out being faithful to the gospel, but making sure that it is just the gospel that they're clinging to, rather than a bunch of extraneous things. In the midst of this important work of discerning, of parsing out, and this is important work, right? Because we don't just, we don't just accept everything and go along with anything. 
But in the midst of this important work of discerning, one of the hardest things for the church to do is to maintain unity across divide. Whatever the issue, in whatever generation, division becomes one of the major roadblocks and challenges that the church has to face. This is not just a problem in churches, right? Like, this is a problem in North America generally. We could probably even say this is a big issue in the global West, right? I don't know if you've ever tried this, but if you have a friend who is on a very different place than you on the political spectrum, if you get together and both of you Google something, the same thing, same search term, type it in, hit search, the results that you get will be different. Did you know that? Both of you, same words you type in, it'll be different depending on the kinds of things that you usually click. Or just, you could just scroll through each other's social media feeds or YouTube recommendations and you will see a whole bunch of things you have never seen before. So we end up in this strange place where we aren't even dealing with the same base information that we're coming to, right? How in the world can we be united if we aren't even looking at the same world, right? Well, here's the truth. In this time and place, we have become increasingly schismatic, increasingly divided, and somehow we are supposed to figure out how to be united as one church. One church in this time and this culture. But I have good news. All hope is not lost. Unity was also a challenge for the church in the New Testament. So there is a great deal of wisdom for us that we can find in the pages of the Bible to teach us about how to hold together as followers of Jesus. And our passage today is one such example. I've said this before, but the Philippian church, the the group of Christians to whom Paul is writing this letter, they are generally a pretty healthy bunch. Like, this is a good, healthy, stable church. This letter is in some ways unique among Paul's letters in that it really is mostly encouraging the church onward and good, the good things that they are already doing. It's not a reprimand. He's updating them on where he's at. It's almost like a friendliness, a collegiality that happens in this letter. And then he's also inviting them into a fuller experience of joy as a community. You've probably heard it said before, Philippians is the joy book, right? We're going to get to that. Don't worry. Not today, but we will. (laughs) Um, It's one of the, but there is one thing that does rise to the top in the book of Philippians. It's a challenge that was happening within this church in Philippi, and it's unity. They are having some difficulties maintaining unity in their fellowship. Now, if you were paying attention when the scripture was being read, you might notice even a hint of exasperation in Paul's tone at the beginning of the passage, right? So he writes, this is from Philippians 2, verse 1, he starts starting, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Like, you know, Ross in his prayer for gratefulness, he, he thanked God for the, for the translators, people who are doing biblical translation work. I am not a biblical translator. I have a little bit of Greek under my belt, but that's about it. But it reads to me, like if I'm reading this passage, if I was going to write the Jeff's translation, it really sounds like Paul is basically saying, for the love of all that is good, please get along, right? Like, just please, everything, if there, is, if there is anything that you learned, if Jesus has moved you in any way, be united, Right? And then, he, and then he goes on, he's like, he says, when he says, make my joy complete, 
what's implied there is that disunity in the body is actually interfering with Paul's joy. And that's a big deal. Because later on in this book, he says that he has discovered the secret. The secret to experiencing joy in all circumstances. But disunity in the body of Christ, that, that gets to him, right? That's the thing. That's keeping him up at night. Now, unity is one of these funny things, right? Because everybody wants it. I don't think if I paid you, I don't think that you could go outside on a busy day and find someone who would disagree with you that more unity would be good for us, right? Like everybody's on the same page there. And it's kind of ironic because agreeing that we should be united is sometimes the only thing that we agree on. (laughs) As soon as we get to the table, sorry, as soon as we get to the how, we get ourselves into trouble, right? But again, there's good news. Because Paul doesn't leave us with, Paul, sorry, he doesn't leave us without some specific and I think helpful advice on how to proceed. I think he does give us in this text specific helpful advice on how to proceed when it comes to maintaining unity in the body, in the body of the church. So look at the next thing he says. He had his, so he had the, for the love of all that is good, if, if Jesus has worked in your lives in any ways, please, please make my joy complete by being one in spirit and of one mind. And then he says, this is verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Did you catch it? What is the answer to disunity for the Philippian church? How do they go about being one across their many divides? Humility. Humility is the thing that makes a way for us to be together as one. Now, before we go any further, I think we need to do a little bit of defining of our terms. There are two words in particular here that I want to make sure that we're on the same page with, because I think they're often misunderstood, and I, and I think that if we get them wrong, we'll actually get the whole message of the text wrong. So, so our two terms that we need to be defined are, one, the first one is unity. What is unity? What do we mean when we say unity? What is the actual goal that we're striving towards when we say we should all be united? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but let me just say this. Unity is not uniformity, right? Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not sameness. Unity means that we go together. We are together, but it doesn't mean that we're all on the exact same line of the exact same page. Maybe, maybe it would be better to think about it as all of us, if we're using a, a metaphor of a book, right, the, the line and the page, instead of us all being on the same line of the same page, perhaps all of us are different pages of that same book, but we are telling one story. That's unity. Not uniformity, right, but unity. All of us, different pages, each telling one story together, all contributing to something beautiful, right? Some of those pages, they're going to be, you know, there's, maybe there'll be scary things, or maybe there'll be con- conflict in some of those pages, or, or, you know, maybe there'll be like moments of height and joy, and in other moments there'll be, there'll be sorrow and despair. All of that together, if it tells one story, that's a united thing, Right? If we're all like one page of that book, if we are all 
following the same story, each of us playing our parts, that would be unity, not other than, you know, rather than the same line over and over and over again. You know, I, don't, I don't think we can get much better than the metaphor that's actually used in Scripture, which talks about the body, right? The church is a body, all different parts, everyone a different part, different roles, but all working together towards one cause, right? When Paul encourages the church to be of one mind and of one spirit, that, what, he, what he's inviting us into is being people of one story, right? And that's the story of Jesus, People, people being made one in the Lord. And that's saying people being drawn into this unity by the work of the Spirit in our lives, right? So this is what we're talking about when we're talking about unity. Not uniformity, actually a diversity of people coming together with one purpose, right? With one story, the story of Jesus as our story. Okay, our second term we need to define is humility. If we're gonna say humility is the, the, the answer, right, then what is it? What is humility really? And to be honest, I think this is probably one of the most often misunderstood ideas in modern Christianity. And it really seems like, like I said earlier, it seems like humility is the medicine that Paul prescribes to the church that is struggling with unity, right? Like, if you've got a cough, you go take some Buckley's. If you've got a headache, you, know, you grab some Advil. If you've got an infection, you're going to get some, some kind of antibiotic, amoxicillin or something. And if you have disunity, what you need is a big old slice of humble pie, right? Like, that's what Paul's giving you. He's going, here you go. Take your humility, right? Now, here's where we're going to take our biggest detour. Because for much of my life, I had a very particular view of what humility was, and I was taught in churches of what humility was, and it was actually, I'm actually very unconvinced that what I was taught was correct or even helpful. See, I remember growing up and hearing about humility and having it always compared to pride, right? There's pride here and humility here, and you want to move from the pride place to the humble place, right? It's like they're opposites. Pride was when we thought all of these trumped up things about ourselves and believed we were better than everybody else and, you know, those sorts of things. And pride was bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, we wanted to be the opposite of that, right? Humility then became to think not good things about myself, but to think bad things about myself. To always have, always have my flaws right in front of my mind to make sure that I wasn't falling into pride. That's what it meant for me to be humble. Because pride was bad, I didn't want that. But where we often found ourselves as a result of that way of going about it was not humility, right? It was something else. It was another thing, and it was a thing that was very different from pride. But it was similarly unhelpful and similarly centered on the self. In pride, you're thinking all about yourself. In humility, in this model of humility, which I think is not true humility, in this model of humility, you're also thinking all about yourself, right? Maybe you've heard C.S. Lewis's quote on this. I actually, I remember the first time I heard it and I found it super helpful. He said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, right? It's catchy, it's easy to remember, and I think that it's true, but I actually found even greater clarity on this, on this topic, when I encountered the work of a pastor and theologian named Dan Kent. And, uh, and here's what he points out in his book on humility. He said, Pride and humility have often been thought of as opposites, but they're not. Humility is not the opposite of pride. The opposite of pride is shame. And when I hear that, I go, of course. Pride 
and shame. Those are oppositional forces, right? He uses the metaphor of a road. He says that there are two ditches on either side. One is the ditch of bigness. There's pride. We, we revel in this big, aggrandized thoughts of ourselves. And then he says all the way on the other side of the road, there's a ditch, and it's the ditch of smallness. That's shame. That's where we sit and we think all of these negative things about ourselves. We keep our eyes fixed on the ways that we're a failure so that that we make sure we don't become proud, right? This is also not a good place for us to live as Christians because we have been set free from the powers of sin and shame. He says they're ditches, and he uses that metaphor for a reason because as soon as you start creeping into one, you're probably going to go all the way to the bottom. And I actually think this is what C.S. Lewis is getting at when he talked about humility as not thinking less of yourself, because he saw both in pride and in its opposite shame, we turn inward and focus on ourselves, right? Pride, we're thinking about how great we are, we get consumed by those beliefs about ourselves, and in shame, we're thinking about how awful we are, and we get consumed by thinking negative things. Both of these patterns of thinking are deeply rooted in comparison. I'm either better than everyone else or worse than everyone else. Pride and shame. But my value is always being written by how I stack up against others. So what then, you might ask, is humility? How do I get out of the, these self-focused models and into something different? And of course, what does that have to do with unity in the passage of scripture that we're talking about today? Well, one would assume from the road metaphor that humility is when we figure out how to drive down the middle of the road, right? And not make it into either of the ditches. Somehow we're splitting the difference between pride and shame, right? Like if it's a scale, a sliding scale, and pride's on the one side and shame is on the other, humility is like balancing on the top, right? Or the bottom, I don't know how you think about it, but in the middle, right? Well, Dan Kent would say, no, that's wrong. (laughs) He says that humility is when we get off of the road entirely. If there is a sliding scale from pride to shame, humility is stepping off the scale. It's refusing to play the comparison game at all because our value is not intrinsic, it is extrinsic. It's not, this is what the big words, it's not based upon me, it's not based upon me being good or bad, it's not based upon anything that I do, it's based upon a God who calls us beloved, Right? The call of humility is to step out of comparison and to step into love. And when we are sitting in that identity as God's beloved children, then we are able to see the beauty in who we are and the good that we have to offer and also to know that it doesn't make us inherently better or more valuable than any other person. But we can also look at the failures and the brokenness, and the sin in our stories, and we can know with confidence that it doesn't make us any less valuable than any other person. And when we think and begin to think and act in this way, other people aren't foils to hold up as as comparisons to ourselves. Other people are people, right? They are also beloved children of God. They are persons of infinite value. Regardless of what they have to bring or offer, both on the extreme side of giftedness or the side of great need. 
I believe that this is the reason that Paul encourages a church who is struggling with unity to consider the importance of humility. Because seeing other people, not as political ideologies or theological constructs, instead seeing them as people, as beloved of God, that is the unifying fruit of humility. But it's not the only piece. So humility draws us into compassion, certainly. It allows us to step out of comparison, to see others as not something we're being compared to, but as beloved children of God. It also prepares us to participate in an absolutely necessary part of unity that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Submission. Ugh. Almost feels like a bad word, right? <laughs> because we should never compromise, right? Of course not. When we stop being concerned with pride and shame, with comparisons to others, we become more willing to join with others in spaces of tension for the sake of love. Because we're able to look outside of ourselves. Here's the truth. Being a part of a diverse community requires of all of us mutual submission, right? It requires of all of us some level of surrender, Think about this even. Two friends, they go for a walk together, right? Each person probably has a preferred speed that they walk at, right? When they walk, this is how, this is how fast I walk when I'm alone. This is how fast I, you know, that my friend walks when they're alone. They're not the same, right? Everybody's got their own special dialed-in pace. If they want to walk together, somebody's going to have to either slow down or somebody else is going to have to speed up, right? So that you can be together. That's Submission, that's, that's mutual submission. That's, there's surrender in that, right? Both people likely have to make some accommodations. And most of the time, you probably don't even think about it unless someone has really long legs and they're super fast and you have to remind them, right? But because of the joy we receive from being together, the joy we receive from being together is so great, it can overwrite the strangeness of walking at a different pace, right? This is the body. The joy we receive for being together as one can overwrite the strangeness of being together with people that we don't always agree with. Because they're people. They are also beloved children of God. They're not good or bad because of that particular perspective. They're a human who is beloved. I'm not compared to them. They're my friend. They're my family. Here's the invitation of Paul. He says, not looking at your own interests but each to the interest of others. Humility lets us do this, right? Let's us listen to an opinion that we might disagree with and consider it rather than out of hand rejecting the thought and the person who spoke it. Humility breaks down walls. I mean, you want a, you want a message for Thanksgiving weekend? How could we bring this idea of humility to bear at our Thanksgiving dinner tables? That's my question right? When topics like politics, money, and even religion begin to bubble up, what would it look like to look to the needs of others first, right? So rather than getting into a debate or asserting your own perspective or just pretending you didn't hear what was said, sometimes that's easier, <laughs> what would it look like to be curious about what the need is in their heart that this particular way of seeing the world is meeting? 
Let me say that again. What would it look like when someone, you know, says that thing that you're just like, how could they believe that, right? When they say that thing, what would it look like instead of being outraged to see them as a person and to be curious about what the need is that that perspective is filling? What would it look like to dream about how you could be a part of seeing that deep God-given need of their heart for freedom, for peace, for adventure, for excitement, for joy, for love, or acceptance, or attention? What would it look like for you to dream about that need being met in a way that fills them to their very core? Humility lets us see past all the crazy political lenses to the hearts. It allows us to love in a way that we have never loved before. And it begins with finding ourselves as loved in ways that we have never been loved before by a God who sees all, knows all, and says that we are worth dying for. Amen? Hmm. I, I think back to the example of Isaac Watts' music at the beginning of the sermon, and remembering with gratitude all of the believers of that same generation who rather than saying, we've got it right, we did fine without all this new stuff, the believers who are willing to be humble and say, this music might not be how I'm most comfortable worshiping, but I see how it is speaking to other people whom I love. And because of that, I want to give it a shot. I want to make space for their music, and as a result, make space for them. Right? That is an act of surrender, church. Born out of humility and love, and it is a posture that unifies. Right? Some churches split on this topic. Others grew. Maybe not always in numbers, but certainly they grew in love for one another. The passage ends with a big statement, right? Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. A tall order. And it continues on into the central passage of the whole book of Philippians, which is sometimes called the Christ hymn. And I'm going to spend the whole sermon next week talking about the Christ hymn. I think it's, it's, the, it's the middle of the book of Philippians. It pulls everything together. But basically, it goes on to describe the way that Jesus was himself God and yet was willing to come as a human and experience the constraints of humanity on behalf of us. His loving act of self-sacrifice. Paul invites us, challenges us, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, living out a sacrificial love for one another, putting aside our individual goals and ambitions on behalf of others. We don't all need to look the same way or think the same things, but if we're going to be one, then there are going to be practices that we all together join in as a community. And this kind of humility is already alive and well in our church, right? I am positive that there are people here who would personally prefer that we just sing hymns, but are willing to go along with our contemporary worship. I know that there are people here who would love it if our worship was more showy with moving lights and maybe a fog machine, there are, there are churches that, that do that, and it is not a bad thing, but it isn't what we do. And those people who would desire that, who would desire the other, who come here and worship with us, they are walking in submission. And when they come and they raise their voices in praise along with their church family, that is a beautiful act of humility and a beautiful act of love. It seems like almost every generation of the church starts to grapple with something and it has the potential to tear churches apart. 
And while some communities are still struggling around the topic of worship, we've mostly settled and begun to understand that our style of worship is not an essential thing. Something that lets us journey together. But the work of maintaining humility, of being together in the tension of dissonance for the sake of love is never over for the church. There is always going to be something that comes and confronts the church, something for us to wrestle with, something that, that makes us uncomfortable. It's been happening since this letter was written to the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago, and it is still happening today. These challenges are not going anywhere until we are fully and perfectly united with Christ. The when and where of which and how is, you know, one of those topics that churches still get into turmoil over, right? But until that day, to maintain unity, to be one, it requires us being willing to be like Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. We're not Jesus. We're not always going to get it right, but we are called to try. <laughs> and when we get it wrong, we repent and we receive forgiveness. And hopefully that whole process helps us to maintain that humility, which is so necessary for us to be together as one. speak of gratitude, <laughs> I, for one, am deeply grateful that this is not work that we need to do alone. We get to wrestle at this together as family. And it's, it's beautiful that it says family, right? Because families can do something really unique. They can accept without always agreeing, right? Isn't that a neat thing about family? Like, whether or not I agree with my sister on XYZ, she's still my sister, <laughs> right? She's accepted as a member of the family, and we journey together. So I'm grateful for our church family that is willing to walk together even when we don't always see eye to eye. But I'm also deeply grateful that the unity of the body of Christ, that the unity of the church is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit draws us together as one. If it were just up to our human will, we would never be able to pull this off. But God has not left us alone, right? He sends to his church a spirit, his spirit, who draws us together and helps us to maintain ties of love across time, across culture, across politics, across ideological divides. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. There is no way that we would be able to resist fracturing without him in our midst, calling us into unity, calling us into humility. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for coming and being among us today. Thank you for the ways that you call us into unity and for the ways that you call us into humility. God, give us the wisdom, the discernment to know when to set aside our pride and to know how to walk in step with you. Lord, I pray for all of us as we, as we go from this place, as we gather with family, with friends, as we gather around tables, Lord, that you would be working in us 
drawing us into this kind of humility that frees us from comparison and invites us to see the belovedness of the other. God, go with us as a church. Bless us. Watch over us. Strengthen us. We pray by your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.